Voices. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to YDHTY, the podcast for the exhausted majority who like their politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today and know one person who would dig it to, please forward it on to them. This podcast grows by word of mouth. Now, this is part two in our four-part series on the national debt. And for those of you who listened to the first episode in this series, you will know that one of the levers we can pull to reduce the debt is to grow the economy. And one of the ways we can grow the economy is to invest our federal dollars wisely. So how are we doing in this regard? To answer this question, I invited Maya McGinnis, president of the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget to discuss. The CRFB is a nonpartisan organization focused on educating the public on issues of fiscal policy and working with lawmakers to promote fiscally sound policies. In this episode, we discuss the state of federal spending and the precarious position we could find ourselves in should economic conditions change ever so slightly. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. So let's jump in. I'm going to say I I am feeling a bit starstruck because I have spent the past week watching every possible YouTube video with you in it. So (laughs) it is wonderful to have you here. Before we get into the subject, could you just start off by giving listeners an introduction to the CRFB and, and your work? Of course. So the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget which is kind of a punchline on its own because who knows the last time we had a responsible budget was. And it's a mouthful and no one can remember the name and the acronym KERFBA. I'll actually, I'm going to brand that, Maya. Sorry. I've worked at this job for 18 years. I spent all 18 years trying not to brand it KERFBA and then I finally gave up. I'm sorry. It's so ridiculous. I'm sorry. No, just you own it. That's weird. We're going to stick with it. It's KERFBA it is. (laughs) It may work. It It may Uh, work, Maya. But the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget is a nonpartisan organization that's focus is on our policymakers to be more fiscally responsible. And what does that mean? Because it's kind of like pornography. It's a little bit in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. But I would define responsible budgeting, meaning not, oh, you have to have a balanced budget every year, but you borrow or you use debt for economic reasons, and they do exist, we just were through one, a huge recession driven by a huge pandemic. That is a time when you should borrow. But very often, we borrow when you shouldn't. And responsible budgeting is borrowing for economic reasons, not political reasons. Okay. And I come at this as a political independent. I'm very wary of the two parties, and I'm particularly wary of the model of running a country with two opposing teams that seem more obsessed with beating each other than running the country. I do not think that's a recipe for success. And I also think you've got political, you've got economic views, you've got foreign policy views, you've got social and cultural views. They might not fit neatly into one box and isn't part of our duty as citizens to try to think through those issues for ourselves and weigh in and and understand different points of view, but also think for ourselves. So I'm not a big fan of the parties 
But I desperately wanted to work on this topic because I, I had a background in economics and then finance. And the more I studied the deficit, the more concerned I became. I wanted to work on the issue because I think it's the underpinning of so many things. But I wanted to do so in a bipartisan way. Mm. So this job at the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget was so perfect because it's committed to working with members of both parties. And then finally, the people who run it, the board of directors, are really impressive folks who've been in government and run the Treasury or the Budget Committees or the Congressional Budget Office or the Federal Reserve Board. And our co-chairs are Leon Panetta, who's had just about every important job in government, and Mitch Daniels, and Tim Penny, a former member of Congress who's now an independent who's worked with both sides to deal with these things. So the leadership and the board gives this organization a lot of credibility. One of the things you can all find on CFRB org or as we're going to call it for the rest of the episode, curfba.org, is the debt fixer tool where you can actually attempt to balance the federal budget. But in doing that, you also understand a lot of the gives and takes and a lot of the choices you have to make. And I- I'm curious, and from your perspective, what do you feel are the main issues with the way we tax and spend today? Maybe it's like you just embrace the absurd. There we go. And that That's helps. It. I mean, the thing about budgeting also is like our field is so on the surface dry and boring to so many people. You kind of need to do anything to get people to smile and learn a little bit about it. And I will tell you, the more people learn about the federal budget, actually, the more they get drawn in. And I, I hope that's what you found with the debt fixer. Yes. We've built a whole. Yeah. Yeah. And that warms my heart. We've we've built a suite of interactive tools because. I love spreadsheets. I even have a coffee mug that says I love spreadsheets. (laughs) Not everybody loves spreadsheets. And we wanted a way to make the federal budget Mm -hmm. and the trillions more accessible. And so we built a lot of different tools on how would you fix the budget? How would you fix Social Security? To quizzes, what's your personality type? Because you can be a big government fiscal responsible person, a small government fiscally responsible person. You can be a huge government fiscally responsible if you pay for it all. And a small government fiscally reckless if you just cut taxes but don't cut spending. So it's not the simple boxes, but we have these personality types and we have all sorts of like exercises, crowdsourcing. How would you fix the budget? How do you think we should spend the money? And we deliver those results, including yours on the debt fixer, back to the members of Congress because we want them to see what people are saying and try to build up. I want to test whether engagement of citizens on the budget is actually workable. So we're going to start launching something that every year budget season we start to push these tools out a little more and try to get people really to weigh in and what they think our priorities should be. That is interesting. So, Do you mind if I go off road a little bit? I'd love it because I think this engagement crowdsourcing idea is really important and related to what you've been thinking about. So please Yeah, no, off. 100%. So super easy for me to balance a budget as one person sitting behind a keyboard. Exceptionally easy, right? You brought up something earlier on, which is that once folks are in Congress, that gets a lot more difficult. And I have a feeling it's not entirely due to political conflict. I also feel it might be due to some political incentives as well. How are the folks who ultimately make that budget incentivized? There's a lot of pieces of this. One, they're not actually incentivized to get much done. Most years, Congress doesn't even pass a federal budget. Last year, the budget committees did not even produce budgets. Frankly, that's such an abdication of responsibility. But oftentimes, the majority party 
finds that it's more difficult to put out a budget and be held accountable to it and have all the amendments from the other parties trying to embarrass them. And they just rather skip the process. And that's why we get into these, you know, there's no budget in place. We haven't funded the government. Will there be a shutdown? All of these different things. And the second is there are many parts of the budget that they don't have to oversee. Two thirds of the budget is mandatory spending or on automatic pilot. And that means it doesn't have to go through the appropriations process. Very important programs, Social Security and Medicare are in that automatic pilot bucket. And so there is no annual oversight in those programs. It just happens that both of, both of them have major trust funds that are headed towards insolvency, Medicare in just a few years, Social Security in about a decade. And nobody's taking action on trying to fix those programs because that's where hard choices come in. Are you going to raise revenues, raise taxes, or are you going to cut spending? Realistically, you could and should do both, but the parties are what they will. They'll battle that out. And so instead, they end up doing nothing. So there's no accountability there. And then where all the action is, is in the one-third of the budget, that's the appropriations. And part of the issue there is that's where money and politics can play a huge role, that you have all sorts of lobbyists and constituents who are benefiting from programs. And this is actually true in the other part, too. I mean, if I'm getting a check in any program, you become a constituent for that program. And so there's support for people not making changes to them other than expanding the benefits. Um, so whether that's farm subsidies or being a, a infrastructure company that's receiving a contract, People are very entrenched, want those programs. There's a lot of money that goes to lobbying to keep those programs from being restructured. The real incentives for politicians is to deliver what their constituents like. They like more spending and less taxes. Mm -hmm. That leads to more debt, and that has many problems that go with it. And so there's a huge bias towards the status quo or borrowing. That, that to me, highlights the difficulty because... In a lot of ways, constituents really want what the government's delivering right now. Yep. Right? The, I mean, the, the problem, so I will talk to people and I'll explain what politicians are doing wrong and how the partisanship is makes it harder and all that. But in the end, the calls or the visits they get or the checks that are written to them reflect, please spend more on this or please tax less on this. Mm -hmm. And when I go in and I say, that's a really good program. How are you going to pay for it? Which is a completely legitimate question and should be how you run your finances unless you're in a recession or unless there's a national emergency. But I mean, if you borrow all the time and we'll get into this, why that's bad on so many reasons, that's a very short term approach and very damaging to the economy. But the question of how are you going to pay for something is almost greeted with, oh, this is so important, we shouldn't have to pay for it. No, something's really important. We should do it and we should pay for it. And likewise, we just went through massive tax cuts in the past few years right before COVID. And if you want to cut taxes, okay, but what do you not want to do? It's like if I want to work a four-day work week, which I do, you know, how much am I going to get paid less? Like how, how are you going to balance those things? And you can't say, oh, I want to work much less, but get paid more and have that end up working out in a way that's balanced for any of the players. The same is true for the government. You can't say, I want to spend a lot more and I want to pay for a lot less without some real fiscal repercussions, which is what they are, yeah. where we are. So yes, the problem is us in the end. But 
Once there's a leader who talks about why this matters and what we need to do, citizens do respond. They care about the issue of fiscal responsibility. Then they don't like the solutions, meaning we're going to raise your taxes or cut your spending. But when you go through how you could come up with a fair and balanced set of solutions and what happens if you don't, then they slowly come around to the issue. And we've seen that at different periods when it's become an important issue on the political agenda. It hasn't been for the past years. My guess is the pressure from inflation and interest rates are going to return it to kind of front and center. And the question is whether we'll have responsible and hopefully bipartisan efforts to help deal with the challenges that particularly happen when your interest rates are growing. But some of the most notable things, I think, in the overall budget are we spend so much more money on seniors than we do on children. Probably six times as much on seniors for every dollar we spend on kids. And it turns out that if you look at poverty rates in this country, seniors used to be the poorest group when programs like Social Security and Medicare started. Those programs were incredibly successful. They are now the richest cohort and the single poorest cohort is children. And to me, our budget, we spend about 85% on consumption, about 15% on investment. That is not a long-term strategy. We need to be looking at investing in human capital, R&D, all the kinds of things that help enhance productivity on the public sector side, but our budget is reversed there. So I'd say our spending priorities um, really upside down, and it has to do with who the loudest voices are, the ARP is much, much louder when it comes to lobbying Congress than children, right? Yeah, well, of course. And if you're, if you're caring about your kids, you're usually caring about the quality of education, how you're going to pay for college, a lot of those things. But the federal budget is not putting nearly as much money into kids as it is into seniors. So that's one issue. I, I'm amazed at that, at that statistic. I'm curious, too. You mentioned 85% on consumption. So... What are some examples of that? Um, Social Security, mm -hmm. Medicare, some of defense, a lot of our health care, veterans benefits, farm payments, pensions. So a lot of the things, again, in that mandatory spending that send out checks. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying they're bad checks. They may be very good, but they're different than we're going to improve education or worker retraining or ways to help you be more productive and make the economy more productive. Mm -hmm. And if what you want to do is grow the economy and then make sure it's distributed in a way that is fair, mm -hmm. you need to enhance productivity. So we had a big infrastructure bill that is more focused on investment when much of the spending recently has been more on consumption. So you, you, you mentioned infrastructure and it sounds like you're a fan of the, the bill that just passed then, correct? So I'm a fan of paying for what we do. If something's important enough to do it, let's pay for it. And my priority would be to shift our budget way out of consumption, way into investment. But I'd still throw in some caveats. First, the infrastructure bill. Love that it was bipartisan. That helps our government function better. Don't love that it still wasn't fully paid for. And the pay-fors that existed were kind of gimmicks. And that, that frustrates me because we have to build back that muscle memory of how do you actually pay for things. If you want to do something, you got to raise taxes or cut other spending. All that said... I worry very much about infrastructure priorities being determined by the political process, where in the end, we, I say, I'm a congressman from district blank. I want as much money as possible going to that district. What I'd really like is an impartial infrastructure board that looked at the country. Where are our needs greatest? Is it bridges? Is it potholes? Is it broadband? Is it water safety? All of those things. 
and I mean, we're spending a lot of money. I would like to make sure it was actually going to the best things. Again, I'd like our infrastructure priorities to be motivated by infrastructure experts allocating the capital, not politicians wanting to, quote unquote, bring home the bacon. So I'd like to do it really well. And I think if there's a lot of money wasted and bridges to nowhere, it will undermine faith in the government to invest. And and I want in government to invest wisely. Have you ever heard of Chuck Marone? No. So Chuck Marone is a civil engineer who went on to found an organization called Strong Towns. If you ever want to be turned off to the way we fund and plan infrastructure, mm. talk to this guy. Because I'll tell you... So maybe Chuck Marone should be in charge of where the money goes. I don't, I don't yeah, know. That. I think he'd agree. Like you want the people... Yeah. You want the you want the people who really know what the needs are and don't look and say, "Hey, Senator Schumer or Senator McConnell, what what do I need for midterm elections?" That's not how we should be making all our decisions. We should act like one country and figure out what parts of the country would benefit the most from investments and we should make them. Yeah. One other sacred cow you mentioned because we've already hit infrastructure, we've already hit social security. The next one is the military. And that is one I think we very often take for granted. How do you feel about what we spend? Are there reforms that could and should be made? A massive yes. And I wish I could say I think there's a lot of savings to be from defense. But I fear we're going to have to plow it back into other national security issues because the world is kind of a scary place right now. Mm -hmm. So the way we fund defense, first off, we actually don't know how we fund defense because every single year... It completely fails the accounting review that is supposed to go on at the Defense Department. It's like a black hole. And nobody's been able to figure out those. I mean, I wish I wish the debt would get fixed so I could go and do another interesting challenge because I'd love to dig deep either into the financing of higher education. You know, why do university prices go up so much when they're subsidized so much? And follow the money in defense. I think it'd be fascinating. It needs a huge cleanup. They are unable to track the dollars. They should be held much more accountable. With all the technology we have, we should be able to track these dollars. It's a fiasco. There's lots of savings. Moreover, so much of that money is plowed into things that are people will defend because it's great job creation, and that's good. We want to create jobs, but we actually want to create jobs for things that are the top priorities, and a lot of these things are outdated because our defense in so many ways is looking towards the threats of the last century. And so I think we could save a huge amount. On top of that, our defense department is really also entitlements for um, military benefits because so much of the education, health care, subsidized things, pensions are all run through that. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of reforms that could happen there. And it's very different to think about how we treat people who've been in the military but were able to retire at age 40, 45 and get pensions for their whole lifetime Versus how we treat people who've been on the front lines and in many ways, you know, are not treated in a way that is acceptable and for all the huge sacrifices they've made. So I think there need to be tons of reforms there. And again, I wish we could save money. Defense is a huge piece of the budget. Maybe we can. I sure wouldn't let me make security policy because I'm not an (laughs) expert. But I will say um, we're probably not doing enough yet on the threats of the future, meaning cyber. And defending against cyber threats is massively challenging. This is a different kind of threat. It's not somebody marching in with guns, right? Mm -hmm. It's an invisible threat. It's present everywhere. The more code we have, the more vulnerable we are. 
And it suddenly allows non-nation state actors to pose the same kind of threats that countries used to. And so shoring up our national security, both in terms of cyber and the other big threat, which goes back to the debt, which is economic competition, um, a dependency on supply chains, as we're seeing, on countries that we're not aligned with. These economic threats are some of the bigger threats to national security. So boy, do I give long answers. But my answer is we could save a lot in national security and defense, but we probably also are going to have to beef up some other areas as new threats are coming online at a quicker and quicker pace. Yeah. And I I do think, too, you, you talk about how national security is tied to economic security. One of the things everyone listening should keep in mind is that our ability to finance the world's largest military is 100% dependent on our ability to pay for it or our ability to take out either mountains and mountains of debt with low taxes. And and again, if that unwinds, whatever strategic advantage we had at being able to dump buckets of money into defense just disappears. And, and I don't know if you've ever looked at this, Maya, and I cite this so many times on this podcast, the listeners are probably like sick of hearing it, but I always point out the M1 Abrams tank factory in Lima, Ohio. I love to pick on that one. Are you familiar with it or no? Okay. Tell me. Okay. 2013, the Pentagon is going to decommission the M1 Abrams tank factory. They no longer need M1 Abrams tanks. Congress overrides them. This plant continues to churn out tanks the military doesn't want or doesn't need to this day. And the reason they do it, of course, is because who's who in their right mind is going to be the party to shutter a factory in one of the most pivotal swing states in the United States of America. That's an interesting one, Maya. I did not invite you here to talk about defense policy. So I want to kind of shift gears a little bit because we've talked a lot about where inefficiencies are in the budget. Now, there's also an argument out there that the debt and the deficit really don't matter so long as the economy is growing. Oh, so well, what that argument is that the debt and the deficit don't matter as long as the the economy is growing faster than they are. Mm -hmm. But if your debt is growing faster than your economy, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. And the problem is for many years we've had, and we are on the trajectory to continue to have a debt that's growing faster than the economy. Our debt right now is at near record levels. It's about 100% of GDP. The only time it's been higher than it has been in the past couple of years is right after World War II. But we have gotten to almost that level just because we borrowed on a regular ongoing basis. We just run deficits all the time now. And so that leads us to a situation where our debt is growing faster than our economy. And frankly, less so held down artificially because the Fed is purchasing so much of our debt and contributing to lower interest rates that if you let go of some of those policies and if those interest rates go up, you then get in a very vicious spiral where your debt is growing faster than your economy even more and your interest payments are growing faster than the rest of your budget even more. And so what's happened is while interest rates have been so low, it's lulled us into this false sense of complacency where people have said, we should borrow more. You know, And the more you borrow, then the bigger debt load you have. So right now we have a situation where if interest rates increase by one percentage point more than they're expecting them to, Our interest payments, which are about $300 billion per year right now, would increase by another $200 billion a year. Like a credit card teaser rate, you've borrowed a ton, rates were low, everything seemed great, but they go up just a little, that very big debt gets refinanced much higher rates. Wow. (laughs) And to, to put that in real terms, too, for the listener, 
and you can correct my figures if I'm wrong, but 200 billion a year is effectively another build back better plan just in interest payments. Isn't that amazing? It's about as much as the 2017 tax cuts, which were reckless because they were not offset by lower spending or other revenues. They were all deficit financed. That could happen again just from a one percentage point increase. That's right. So these programs we're talking about are huge. It's just our vulnerability to shifting interest rate environment is also huge. Do you have a sense as to when fiscal conservatism died? Because in a lot of ways, you do. Tell me. So 10 years ago, Simpson-Bowles was an incredibly impressive bipartisan commission that made recommendations of how you put in place a debt deal Mm -hmm. that would save $4 trillion and put us on back on a path, not towards balanced budgets necessarily, but where the debt was growing slower than the economy, what you said. If the economy is growing faster than your debt, you're probably going to be in a manageable situation. And so this was a blueprint for how to do that. There was so much interest in getting it done. Bipartisan, 80 senators out of 100 were on board for this. And they made tons of compromises and they had a plan that respected the Democrats' priority of really protecting the bottom 40% of Americans so that they wouldn't have any effects on the benefits they were receiving. And the Republicans' really big priority that it be structured in a way, though revenues would be included, they would be put in a way that would help grow the economy instead of harm it, because economic growth is so important for increasing the pie. Like, they got to know each other's priorities. They compromised a word that we no longer hear ever, and they put together this great package. And then in the end, they weren't able to get it done. I work with a lot of them to try to get them to say, we'll actually take higher taxes, reform the corporate tax codes are more competitive, but charge us more money. And overall, we'll pay more in taxes, not less. That's kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. When the thing didn't pass, everybody basically said, Washington's broken. And politicians said, we're not working together. There's no trust. We can't get anything done. And then with the big tax cuts of 2017, that furthered the mistrust. When the Republican Party said, we're going to cut taxes and add to the debt, a bunch of Democrats said, well, I thought you cared about these issues. And we were supposed to like not make this worse. And so once they started making it worse, everybody kind of backed away. But people used improvement in the deficit just to say, okay, the deficit's coming down. Let's not worry. Instead of now's the time to make things, get things better, strengthen Social Security, fix Medicare, get the budget so that it's balanced enough. They didn't do that. And then the deeper polarization that has come from a number of factors. We have a project called Fix Us that looks into what the root causes of the division, dysfunction, and distrust in this country are. And there are a lot of factors from political to economic to cultural to technological to a failure of leadership. I think there's a lot of pieces here. That polarization left the political parties basically unwilling to do the hard work of fiscal policy. And so we now have many, many leaders who don't want to do anything hard. They want to be reelected. They want their party to be the majority. They think this is an existential fight, no matter what the topic is. They don't want to compromise. They are focused on the short-term, not the long-term health of the country. We can't deal with any of the big challenges in this country, whether it's climate, competition with China, a failure of our education system, or our massive and growing national debt. We seem to be dropping the ball on everything right now. And that's what polarization is doing to the country. We've talked a lot about the different tweaks that could be made, raising taxes, reforming Social Security, 
reforming military spending, uh, and so on, they're all politically unpopular. And they all require a certain amount of political cover in order to get them through Congress. And yet we have a Congress that's really incentivized to sort of own the other team. So is polarization really, in your mind, kind of the biggest obstacle to getting this done? Or are there other things? I mean, that's why we started this project, right? So fix us, looking at these divisions and this dysfunction and this distrust, the three Ds, we call them. I'm incredibly worried about them as a citizen, as a mother, you know, just as a person. But it's also related to my day job in that I know that the only way you fix the fiscal environment, which is the underpinning of every other piece of the economy, you cannot have a growing economy, you cannot have growing standard of livings, you cannot have national security that comes from economic independence, you cannot have the ability to weather the next crisis, you cannot have the ability to update your modernize your social contract as the needs change as they have if you are over indebted. I know this doesn't touch people at the kitchen table, but it's a real issue that impacts the well-being of not just our country, but our families and our households. So it matters so much, but I I don't believe you can address it unless you have politicians who are willing to make hard choices, focus on the long-term, put policy over politics, and at the end of the day, compromise. And polarization has made those four criteria nearly impossible. And yet they're the exact things that we need to solve any hard problems. And I think the debt's one of the hardest because it's numbers. And it comes down to the basics of if you want more, you need to pay for. If you want less, you need to give up something. Nobody's willing to do that. And they're all pointing the finger at someone else. Like, I'm not raising my taxes. You raise your taxes. Like, we're in such a, like, we're not in it together right now as a country, which is which is one of the huge outcomes of, of polarization. Mm-hmm. So we're not willing to make any of those tough choices. So okay. first off, my 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 instinct was to stop right there because you absolutely nailed the dismount on that one. And I don't like to fix what isn't broken. <laughs> but the, there's one other question I have for you, which is you talk about 2010 with Simpson Bowles, right? We had just come out of a serious financial crisis where we needed to take on mountains and mountains of debt to, to spend our way out of it. Right. We, we're hopefully coming on the tail end of a pandemic where we had to do the same thing. If we don't fix this, what is our capacity to deal with the next crisis? It's so important that we were able to borrow in 2008, 2009. We went into that crisis, our debt was 40% of GDP. We came out and it was well above 80, moving quickly up towards 100. We went into this crisis, you know, and we were able to borrow because we are the reserve currency and the safe haven. We know that there is competition for those roles around the world. Everything now is trying to displace the U.S. This is not a privilege we will have forever. And so the problem is when there is a crisis and anybody who's living in this moment and not feeling like these crises are bigger and coming faster at us you know, come talk to me because I need that dose of happiness because things feel really (laughs) scary and dire right now. And you need to be prepared so that you can borrow. And if you can't, that means your need to borrow will push up your interest rates, which will actually contract your economy and make your recession deeper. And you get stuck in a very ugly hole. And then you have to make the massive changes that I'm talking about. And that future isn't just us. It's also our kids. And it's 
the opposite of how we're supposed to run a country where you try to leave it better off for the next generation than what you inherited. But the country and the world is filled with massive new risks that weren't there before. Huge disruptions and displacement, becoming um, irrelevant in your 40s and 50s, whereas you used to think you'd work through your 60s and maybe even your 70s and get paid more every decade. The opposite is happening. Entire industries being outsourced or becoming irrelevant through automation. All of these things call for a huge new social contract. That's the kind of investment I'm really talking about from the beginning of our conversation. What should we be doing more of in the budget? That's not part of the American agreement. And you need risk insurance against that. And you need retraining. And we need a social contract that's actually tailor-made for the risks we have right now. So the next one, whether it's preparing for those risks or updating the way our government is working for the new reality, our debt is hamstringing us, keeping us from do that, doing that in a way that's effective and creating the security that people should need and want. And that is a result of us having spent a lot of money in the past and been unwilling to pay for it. And we're shortchanging the future. And in some ways, the future is now. We're already being shortchanged, but it's only going to get worse if we're not able to reverse course on it. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please leave it a review. And if you did not, as always, and can keep this between us, I would greatly appreciate it. You can also learn more about the CRFB and check out their debt fixer tool at crfb.org. I'll also have a link to it in the show notes on ydhty.com. Just click the link that says episodes in the upper right-hand corner and ye shall find. Now, the big takeaway from today's episode is that our fiscal situation reflects the incentives of those in office. Voters love lower taxes. Voters love funding for their favorite programs. And voters love it when their elected officials stick it to the other party. And this has created an environment where it makes political sense to continue to engage in deficit spending as any of the hard work involved in correcting our fiscal state would require near lethal levels of compromise to those in office. And this works now when borrowing is fairly easy, but given that a 1% increase in interest rates could increase our minimum annual payment on the debt by $200 billion, that is about four times what we spend on education for reference, that could mean some very difficult decisions would be forced on us. And this brings us back to an issue we discussed in the first episode, that political polarization is the number one obstacle to us getting our fiscal house in order. Change the incentive system for the politicians and we can change the policy. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's editorial advisor and producer is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Geno, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Oh, bye bye.